I am Plaza on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. One of uh, the powerful books of the season is Kathy Wagner's Here With You, a memoir of love, family, and addiction. In the book, she chronicles her struggle to save her son from addiction. We uh, read about Tristan, who at the age of 14 begins experimenting with drugs. We see how she deals with his drug use and addiction and the journey towards treatment. It's a long six years before Tristan consents to treatment. And Ms. Wagner, who joins me now, narrates the tremendous work she does finding ways to save her son, like studying kung fu in China or culinary school, even paying for his drugs to keep him safe. She's honest about the patterns of addiction Tristan goes through, which invariably affect Kathy and uh, her family. And when Tristan begins his recovery journey, we see how challenging it is for Tristan and how costly it is. We uh, see Kathy and uh, her eldest daughter contend with their own recoveries. And um, after uh, Tristan's death by accidental overdose, we see Kathy dealing with her grief and pain. We uh, see her as she heals, and it's uh, such an insightful, compassionate read. It's also brutal and honest, and she doesn't spare even herself. Kathy Wagner is the mother of three grown children, including her son Tristan, who died from fentanyl poisoning in August 2017. She has actively advocated for improved access to quality addiction recovery services. She's a peer support group facilitator and has appeared on numerous media outlets telling her story. This uh, new book is published by Douglas and McIntyre, and she joined me from Port Coquitlam three weeks ago. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Kathy Wagner. Ms. Wagner, good morning. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, we read early on in, in the book, um, in the first chapter, you doubting your, your parenting abilities. And, and, and this comes up throughout the book, doubting the choices you made. Are you able to look back? With hindsight, because your 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 two daughters are are, are much older now, mm-hmm. um, and you, you've written this book and, and had to relive many moments of, in in your parenting life, um, are you able to look back and forgive yourself for for whatever choices you made? Say, yes, absolutely. And I would I would take that a step further, though. I think that as parents, many of us, even with children who are not as challenged as some of mine were, um, tend to feel like, you know, parenting is difficult. It's really hard to feel like you're always making the right choices. And that when you're dealing with children, uh, youth who are experiencing addiction, I have yet to speak to a parent who hasn't felt some degree of guilt. You know, as parents, we're supposed to raise our children to be healthy and, you know, happy and productive. And when addiction is part of the equation, it doesn't work out that way, so we feel like we're failing as parents. Um, so I think that that's a very normal feeling. So for me, I think it was less about forgiving myself as just continually reminding myself that I did the absolute best that I could with what I had, Yeah. and just letting the rest go. See, I'm, I'm 41, and I don't have children, and uh, nor do I intend to have children. So, so when I see these patterns of behavior with Tristan, mm-hmm. um, and um, the, sort of the bargaining and the and the deceit sometimes, mm-hmm. um, and and you make the decision so, sometimes to, to do to do something that you know is wrong, like it, he asks for for money, uh, mm-hmm. and and you you give it anyway. You know, th- then I realize well. Um, the, the non-parent in me could think, well, you know, why would you do that, right? But then as a parent, I guess you, you don't have another option, do you? 
You know, it, it's interesting to me, this idea of, of what's right and wrong, and it's something that I have continued to, you know, it, it has evolved uh, for me. In the book, you see me doing things that almost everybody would say would be the wrong thing to do. Generally speaking, we do not uh, take our 15-year-old children and give them drugs and drive them to a drug deal, right? That's not the kind of parent I ever set out to be. It's not the kind of parent I was proud to be. And yet, even still, in retrospect, I don't know what other choice I had in that particular moment, given all of the various factors at play. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that I wanted to do with this book was mostly provide, you know, some support to other parents who are maybe going through parenting challenging children and making decisions that that they never thought that they would have made and to just let them know that, A, they're not alone. And I think that as long as we are always trying to do the best possible things for our children and are doing it with love and with good intention, then it's not a wrong choice. I think that the idea of the best way to parent children who have substance use disorder um, is evolving, and and the the tough love approach is is being debunked. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know what the best way is. So I'm a huge proponent of you do the best you can, and you do it with love, and you're a freaking hero because nobody knows how hard it is to be parenting a youth who is an active addiction. It's yeah. an impossible task. Yeah, and so he's he's 15 years old. Well, I guess when we first meet him in the book, he's he's 14, and then yeah. um, once he's 15, you realize he does need rehab, but yeah. he he obviously doesn't want it. Um, and and that part of the book where where um, you're looking for options, seeking rehabilitation. I mean, um, we're from the same part of the world here in Metro Vancouver. Um, the options are costly, aren't they? And it's not it's not easy to get into if if you decide to do that one day, right? Well, for sure, they were, you know, it, it is, you know, uh, addiction treatment, you know, rehab centers uh, continue to be exorbitantly expensive and hard to get into. And for Tristan, when he was 15, um, well, for, for anybody, you cannot get into them unless there's a, a strong willingness and commitment to do the work. Yeah. At, at 15, Tristan did not want to go into treatment. He didn't see he had a problem. He was quite happy to be using drugs problematically. And so there was nothing I could do for him at all. Yeah. and uh, within, within the system, within, yeah. our, within our care, healthcare system, there was nothing I could do for him. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And, and he, he um, talks to you about the stigma of being an addict. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's something that he's quite concerned about, isn't it? And, and, um, that's probably one of the reasons that stops a lot of people from getting help, right? It absolutely is. I mean, when he was young, I mean, that was the last thing he wanted to be, you know, associated with because, you know, there has been drug addiction running through our family. Tristan was aware of what it was and he was aware, you know, of 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 how it can impact people. And he he did not want that for himself. And... So he was very clear that was not his path. He was he could use drugs for, you know, what he thought of as recreationally, but what had come to realize that was actually self-medicating. Mm. Um, but he thought he had it all under control. 
and he he didn't want to he didn't want to be I'm putting air quotes around an addict. Yeah. Later on, um, you know, when he got into recovery, he was quite happy to embrace the fact that he had addiction and was struggling with it, and and that that could. Um, and that he could help break down some of the stigma around that, and yet even still, the stigma around relapse um, was very, very hard for him because he struggled with his sobriety, and you know every time he relapsed, there there was the stigma and the shame of that, and and that was devastating for him. Yeah, you do a marvelous job throughout the book in in um, chronicling what it's like to to work on sobriety and have to um, relapse because and unfortunately that that's what what happens regardless of whatever uh, method of treatment um, or, or uh-huh. therapy you take um, it's easy to get uh, as someone who, who knows little about this stuff to get frustrated by um, the, the the deceit as I, I mentioned a moment ago these uh-huh. patterns of behavior um, how do you cope with say especially the angry, violent episodes. I mean, he, he, he wishes you death or he calls you the C word. These are tough to read, these scenes, when he gets quite violent in, in, the, in the home. Um, yeah. you, you constantly tell yourself that it's the addiction and not him. But, but at some point, that line, um, you can't use that anymore, can you? Well, no, no. And in fact, towards the end of the book, I reverse. I reverse that whole perspective where I talk about I cannot separate him from his addiction mm. um, towards the end because everything that he experienced, whether those were his thoughts, his feelings, or his behaviors in addiction, he was part of that. He was along for that. He was impacted by that. And in fact, it was part of what ultimately he could draw strength and compassion from. But back to, um, you know, the question is like, you know, writing those scenes that where he is, you know, it, it was challenging for me to think of writing this story because I want Tristan to be remembered as the absolutely beautiful, generous-hearted, empathetic, loving person that he was. And I'm writing scenes where he was anything but that because that was also part of him. And part of it was I honestly... This might sound strange, but I really never understood how terribly unusual that was Mm -hmm. until certain people started reading earlier drafts of the book and saying, wow, how could you have, how could you put up with that? And I'm like, well, how could I not? This is what was happening. Like, how, this is my world. And I think it is the world for many parents who have kids with substance use disorder, who have you know, kids with various mental health issues. And we don't know about it so much because we don't talk about it. And that was one of the things I wanted to do is I wanted to talk about how difficult it is as a parent. Um, Because, you know, Tristan was not unique. My story is not unique. And there's a lot of us going through similar things that, you know, we can lend each other strength if we would just, um, you know, be able to be open about it. Yeah, um, you mentioned a moment ago the uh, addictions a place in, in your family's in Tristan's family's history. Um, this intergenerational stuff. Um, 
this this is something that you address in the book because because the, these are challenges that that Tristan obviously goes through his sister as well. Um, you, you talk about um, embarking on a road uh, to recover yourself through, in, in the book. Um, do you think we, t- we we think about that enough in in, in our culture? Because I mean, it, it, this stuff you know whatever happens in in, in one's family history, even if you don't know the story even. I mean, these things do affect us, don't they? Absolutely. And I think that it's, it can be obvious in some families, in um, Tristan's paternal side of his family, for example, there's addiction that was very obvious in that, you know, he had uncles who were unhoused on the street. Um, you know, there's various uh, symptoms of very clear, severe addiction on that side of his family. Mm-hmm. And on my family, the same would, is true in the extended circles, but even much more closely. You know, I've grown up in environments where over-drinking and alcoholism was perfectly fine as long as everybody's holding down a professional job. And you don't think about that as a problem, even though it, it absolutely is. It just is one of those things that in many families is not talked about. And so, you know, Tristan had addiction in the family on both sides of his family for generations. And for me particularly, it's funny because I, you know, denial is so, is so fascinating, really. Mm-hmm. When I began writing this book, I began writing this book to share the story that addiction can happen in any family, which I not just strongly believe, but I absolutely know to be true. Yeah. But I thought I was writing that, like, you know, this happened to our family. It could happen to any family. But our family is not just any family. Our family has addiction in the family, but we hadn't, I hadn't even fully looked at it, addressed it, and understood it. Um, because it's easy to not talk about. It creates uncomfortable feelings. Um, people in, you know, unle- you know, we have this stereotype idea of somebody with some abuse disorder you know, living on the streets, unable to hold down jobs, whatever it is, and that's not the case. There are many, many, many people who are struggling with substance use disorder who function well in, yeah. who, who perceive to be functioning well in life who actually are not internally. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, uh, he spends a lot of time in China. It's about mm-hmm. a year, isn't it, the, the first time, um, yeah. learning Kung Fu. That's a very special time because you, you you went over there with him for for the first little bit. Um, what did, what did you see in Tristan that, that that probably he wouldn't have say had had he stayed at home? Well, he did. So this his entire sixteenth year, um, he was over there exercising all day long, five days a week, and he was not using drugs over that time. So his brain continued to develop and it normal, healthy way. So there is that. But I think most importantly, it gave him two things. One is a sense of what it is like to actually be part of a community, to fit in, to belong, mm-hmm. which is something that he had not quite found his way um, here prior to that time. And the other thing is it gave him a skill that he was proud of. It gave him some successes. It gave him 
things to talk about and feel like he had accomplished something. So I always felt that no matter what happened with his path of addiction after that, it would give him it would give him a solid foundation to know that what it felt like to be healthy, to be part of something, um, you know, to be achieving his goals, and he would have that to come home to. Yeah, and then uh, unfortunately, the, the, the second trip back to Asia, not just China, yeah. um, but Thailand, um, mm-hmm. th- that doesn't really work out for him, does it? No, because he was not in the same environment, and he ended up, um, because his school had transferred further north by that time, and he was more of a senior student and left to train much more on his own, which is part of the part of the mental training that they that the senior students have have to go through. Yeah. Um, it really was not resonating with him, and I, you know, it worked well when he had that his particular Shifu Shifu Wong, who was, you know, he was very close to, um, and there was a degree of oversight. And going to Thailand, it was, you know, it would be great for somebody who, with a lot more self-discipline and motivation than Tristan had uh-huh. internally. Tristan was always very externally motivated. Um, so, yeah, that was the complete opposite of uh-huh. his experiences in China. The, um, the, 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 uh, you write about the, the, the rehab facilities that, that, that he uh, was at. Um, two of them in, in, in this part of the world here in, in Metro Vancouver. Um, and the, the uh, community that he developed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a beautiful scene near the end of the book where um, this is, uh, you're walking uh, towards the uh, the New West Public Market and you see so, some of the, the residents of, of one facility that he had been at. And you're reliving what it was like when, when he was there and, and moments you had with him and his friends. And mm-hmm. um, You've heard this later on from, from, from people that knew him, just, just how helpful he was to other people and yeah. and the sort of this community that he develops. Um, I, 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 as I was reading that, I couldn't help but think that, that, that um, one would be very proud of, of what he accomplished in recovery, right? Absolutely. He, you know, Tristan was always very passionate about the things he connected with, whether that was martial arts or cooking was his other big passion, mm-hmm. and then and then finally recovery. And, you know, it wasn't easy. It took a lot of work, and I think that was part of what grounded his pride in his recovery. But really what fed it was his feeling that he could be of help to somebody else. That, that was Tristan's purpose, you know, for for much of the time of the last year of his life, is just knowing that he was helping other people by example, by sharing his story, by his sobriety. And, um, you know, his sister was one of those people. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, he was fortunate in that, um, you know, through the treatment centers that he he was part of, he was connected to the larger a recovery, New Westminster recovery community. It it is um, predominantly an a narcotics anonymous mm-hmm. um, community, but it resonated well with him. He, Tristan, you know, acknowledged. We had conversations that you know that he was he was an all or nothing sort of guy. So for him, he knew that um, he would never be able. He did not. He did not feel like he would ever be able to be moderate in any mind-altering 
you know, um, drugs. So abstinence was his choice. Mm-hmm. And that particular recovery community at that time was hugely supportive. It um, definitely saved his life at times. Mm-hmm. And he was part of saving other people's lives. And it's part of, you know, what they what they do for each other. Because right now, unfortunately, there are way, way too many lives being lost. Yeah, and, and you describe how Tristan lost his life, uh, his death, um, and, and and you know we know when we start the book what's going to happen because it's on the cover of the book and it's also on the on the back of the book, say, um, and you build to that, and and th- that's the tragedy of it, um, how accidental it it was for Tristan and for a lot of people, isn't it? Because I mean, this is a crisis that we're going through, in. in um, not just in in Metro Vancouver, but but throughout North America, right? Absolutely. You know, with the drug toxicity crisis, it it is like playing Russian roulette, and um, it's so very arbitrary. It, you know, who lives, who dies. It's there's no sense to it. There's no sense to be made at all. And when people are struggling, are struggling with substance use disorder. It seems hard for those of us who don't live it to say, like, just, just don't do it. Why, yeah. why would you do it? Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I think that there is so much pain inside of themselves, so much pain. And for Tristan, again, in another relapse, it was the pain of his own mental health challenges together with the shame of addiction and continuing to relapse. That, you know, those of us who know him, um, most closely felt that it, it wasn't so much of his choice as he just, he just needed some peace. And he was not ignorant of the fact that the drug's supply was toxic. Um, but the odds continued to be like, you know, people use them. Most people live. You never know. And I think he probably at that particular time just didn't really care enough. Um, you know, I, we all know he wanted to live, yeah. but there's this part of the mental health challenges is if there's just one moment that says, but I just want peace and I'll take my chances, then then that's what happens. And, you know, people will use drugs for various reasons, whether they are um, addicted to them or not. Um, there's lots of youth out there who are still continuing to take drugs recreationally, even when they are not suffering with substance use disorders, and some of them don't make it because of the toxic drug supply. So, you know, we have to realize that for many, many reasons, people will continue to be taking drugs, and they're poisoned right now, and we're losing whole generations of really beautiful people. Yeah. You talk in the book about the anger that you felt after his death um uh-huh. and and how do you deal with the anger today that that little is being done about this crisis oh, <laughs> it's you know it's so hard for me i was i was fortunate in that i very quickly got involved in a canadian group here mums of the harm mm-hmm. and they kind of have two branches one is grief support um and the other is advocacy and so I, you know, I believe that anger is golden when it can be channeled into advocacy because that can give you a lot of energy and momentum to help drive change, Because, and that's what we need. For me personally, 
I was not, I don't, I can't hold on to anger long enough for me to keep me super energized given all of the challenges and barriers and politics around the, the advocacy. Mm-hmm. So my form of advocacy tends now to be in writing, sharing my stories, in supporting others, um, helping to raise awareness through sharing our stories, and making sure that I'm doing something of service to, you know, within this capacity. I think we all have different things to offer, and it's just finding kind of where you fit within that. So I'm not, I'm not ever going to be a political leader of change. That's just not who I am. But I can, I can share stories and I can listen to people's stories, and that alone can create change. What is it like for you, Kathy, to, to have to, to write this book and, and have to relive a, a lot of stuff that, 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 that is painful, say? Um, as you write the book, um, I mean, you do take care of yourself, don't you? Uh, yeah, and I was very fortunate because the first um, writing coach I had while writing the first draft was uh, a, an author and an editor, but also a family therapist. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the reasons why I chose her, um, because she could she helped a lot in providing ideas and support so that I was writing about trauma without reliving the trauma. So there's different tactics you could use. I was very gentle with myself. There's a lot of authors that, a lot of writers that say, oh, you know, just put your but in the seat and make sure you put out your how many words a day or whatever. I don't think it works that way when you're writing about trauma. Like some days you can't, some months you can't, and that's okay. Uh, It takes time and these things have to slowly unfold. What was surprising to me was not how difficult it was to write about trauma because I was expecting that to be difficult and also cathartic, which it was. It was a very, very cathartic process, the first draft. Mm -hmm. Um, after that, I was revising it more for the readers, but the first draft was for myself. But what really surprised me was how difficult it was to write about the joyful memory, mm. you know, and some of which um, didn't make it in the book, because, of course, I wrote way more than was included in the book. But it was heartbreaking to write about the joyful memories, knowing that I would never have any more with, with Tristan. Mm-hmm. So... That was, in some ways, much harder for me than writing about the trauma. Because when I wrote about the trauma, it felt like I was releasing the trauma. Yeah, yeah. Um, There are other people depicted in the book other than Tristan, your your daughters, Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, other family relations. What do they make of, of, say, their experiences as they know it and how you saw it at the time? Because sometimes these things can be very different for different people, right? Uh, Of course, we all have our different memories, and uh, memory is very, very faulty. You know, I have been incredibly fortunate in that, as far as my girls, anyway, my two daughters, um, I've been, I've kept them in the loop all the way through. I've talked to them about different scenes and so forth, and consistently they've both said, Mom, you write your story your way. Like, we trust you. It's your story. Go for it. And my mom is also a big part of the story. Yeah. And her journey, you know, she is my biggest cheerleader and always has been and always will be. And she's part of a generation that does not open up about a lot of the things that I'm talking about. So she had many more concerns. And um, I would just sit and kind of explain to her why it was important to, to share these things in the story. And, you know, she accepted that. So I was extremely fortunate in that I had the support 
mm-hmm. um, of my family. I was also thoughtful about the things that I put in, in that I, I did not, if I put in anything that would cast a, a shadow on somebody's character, it was always with good reason. So, you know, if it moved the story forward, if it helped to connect something, you know, I, I wasn't just throwing out, you know, I wasn't throwing anybody under the bus, so to speak. Um, everything had a purpose. Uh, and I think that people who know me trust me. Like, they know I'm not out to just badmouth anybody. So they seemed, you know, very gracious in allowing me to put their lives in my hands as far as how they ended up in the book. How do you navigate the choices you have to make when uh, deciding whether to include, say, Tristan's journals? Yeah, that that was a very hard one. And it, that was interesting because I had no intention of including um, some of the more traumatic scenes that, that yeah. came out of the journals. I, like, I wrote... I wrote all the drafts and all of the revisions, and those were not in there until the very end. And um, in the end, I was trying to write another kind of more joyful scene, and I was just kind of blocked because I had all of these things in my head because I had not yet let them out. Yeah. And one of the things I believe very strongly is that when you put, when you share your stories of trauma with in, within a safe place anywhere, whether that's in writing or to another person or or a therapist, or a best friend, it loses its power to harm you. And what I had been doing is I was holding on to some stories within myself and not sharing them with anybody to the point where I was unable to really think any more about this book because they were just there. So I wrote out those scenes mostly for myself, and then I shared them with the editor, and it's like, do they belong here? And we decided that we do, that, that they did. And because they helped to show what it is really like to both live in addiction and live and love somebody with addiction. And that is, that is the whole premise of my book, right? The, one of the major themes that I wanted to get out is that um, by sharing our, our stories, we can find peace. Yeah. You know, by sharing our stories, we do not need to feel alone. We do not, you know, sharing our stories helps to break down the stigma and isolation and shame. And so it didn't make sense for me to, to hold on to some of that stuff and continue to, you know, that'd be just very, um, it, it didn't feel true to me. Yeah. So, and I was worried about that, both with family members and, you know, what other people might think. And again, I've had a lot of really fantastic support. People saying that some of those things were the most meaningful to them because they had gone, you know, they go through similar experiences with their child or have done, or they understand that the importance of, of not keeping things inside. Yeah, and there are, there are painful and dark things that you find out mm-hmm. as you're reading his journals after his death. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm dancing around this because I don't want to give it away for people listening to us mm-hmm. about these things that you find out. Um, but they are necessary things. Um, to get out there that that, that um, uh, I think he, he probably would have found value had he lived um, to talk about some of the things that he, he talks about in, in, in his writing, right? Absolutely, and that was starting to happen already within his kind of inner circle. He was starting mm-hmm. to open up about some of his stuff. And, um, you know, I really did want to show that 
you know, even like our so many, I think just a disproportionate number of people who suffer from substance use disorder tend to be very empathetic, very loving, very generous, you know, um, and they feel hypersensitive, they feel too much, and that's one of the reasons why they might start to self-medicate. Mm. And the life of living in active addiction is traumatic. You know, trauma, you know, it's not just the being empathetic and super sensitive, but also, um, you know, trauma that they've experienced is often part of it, um, obviously. And then living in addiction perpetuates that trauma. You know, it's not, it's not an easy life in addiction. Living in addiction is a living a life of trauma. And so there's so many parents who learn things after the fact or know things, you know, even while they're alive. There's many things that I wrote about when Tristan was still alive that I realized um, that were very difficult for me to know. Yeah. And as parents, like, we don't want to talk about that because it's not ours to talk about. But as soon as we have that knowledge and we're carrying the burden of it, it is ours. Yeah. Well, this book has been out for, for several weeks now. Um, in terms of the feedback that you're getting from parents, for example, um, what are they telling you after having read the book? I have had so – it has been so heartwarming. I have had people, you know, say it's completely um, – they felt heard, they felt seen and supported, they said it's been hopeful and inspiring. Um, it, you know, it has been hugely heartwarming. I've also heard from parents who say they can't read it, mm. and, and I understand that too. Um, you know, it deals with difficult topics. That for some people, um, they don't, are not ready to go back there, but um, for the people who have read it, uh, it has just been incredibly encouraging. You know, you, you write, I wrote this kind of book with the idea that if it can help anybody, it'll be worth it. And, and it's just so, it is so wonderful to know that that, that that is the case, you know, that people are, it is resonating with people. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I can't help but think that this will help people. And I, I know I'm glad for having read it. Um, there are things here that I'll, I'll remember for a long time. Um, there's a phrase that comes up, Kathy, uh, throughout the book, and, and you use it to, to say, sort of um, contend with various challenges that come up through through life, um, ha- having to deal with life on life's terms. Mm-hmm. I, I kept I kept thinking about that as I was finishing the book because um, you can interpret that, you know, a couple of different ways. Um, what does it mean to you to, to, to say deal with life on life's terms now? Well, for me, it just means that there are some things in our lives that we have no control over. So, for example, in in the, the book I talked about for Tristan, some of the terms of his life was that he had substance use disorder, he had depression, he had anxiety. Those were the terms of his life, and he could manage them and learn to live with them and find ways around them, but they would be part of him. For me, the term of my life was that I had a child with all of these challenges, and and that impacts me. Um, And these days, it's the same thing. So the term of my life is that I accept, you know, my children as they are and as they come. You know, a term of my life is um, I don't have control over everything. But what that does also do is it shows you 
the things you do have control over. One of the things that I learned in, you know, what I refer to as my own process of recovery was to stay in my lane and focus on my life and focus on the things that I do have control over. So I think in my mind, there's two parts to life. There's the life on life's terms, the part that you just have to take and, and make the best of. And there's the things that you have control over and can shape. And those are actually very narrow and usually confined to yourself. There's a great deal to think about as, as one finishes the book, and, and um, it is a book that I think is a great service to a lot of people. A lot of people who read it. Um, it it's such a great book, and it, it was a, a marvelous opportunity to get to know Tristan, and uh, it's a great tribute to him. C- congratulations and continued good luck with the book. I so appreciate your time today, Kathy. Thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time to read it and talk about it. The book is called Here With You, A Memoir of Love, Family, and Addiction. It's published by Douglas and McIntyre. It's author Kathy Wagner. Join me on the line from Port Coquitlam in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.